Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Can I can I do the sound effect or did it already? I did it already. Oh, okay. Can't you hear on your headphones that you're obviously wearing in this professional studio we're in? Yes, where there are really expensive sound equipment, where there's no uh, there's no construction outside, and there's no cats running around making noise. Refrigerator doesn't make a humming noise that makes me. (laughs) <laughs> want to tear my hair out every time I edit an episode. No, we're totally in a professional booth. And uh, who are you, professional podcaster? Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN. I uh, recently wrote for TV Guide. I uh, have whatever nickname you choose. Lord Crumble Bumble is here today with me to answer your emails. Um, I'll, I'll accept Lord Crumble Bumble, but I do want to know why. It sounds like I'm a, like a pastry chef. Yeah, but you're but you're a little I mean, bumbly at it. You're I, a little I bumbly. Am, I, I do admit that I'm a pretty good baker. Yeah, I'm not a great baker, but I'm a pretty good baker. Yeah. there's things I can put together without failing. I've seen you lose your balance before, though. So that's the bumble. And okay. then you and then you're a lord because I like you and I respect you. Oh, thank you. Although lord is an actual rank. Shh. Moving on. <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. So yeah, this is the podcast where we answer your letters and you get to control. The conversation. You get to tell us uh, what to talk about, what you're going to ask us questions. Uh, you get to rebut our uh, our critiques on shows like Critically Claimed or Cancel Too Soon. Uh, so if you want to email us in, it's too late to get on today's episode, I think. <laughs> I'd be uh, you know impressed if, if you did. If, if by some coincidence I get an email while we're recording, I'll read that one. Cool. Uh, in fact, that's but the we, new rule. If you record- fit it in while we're recording, fine, but we will never tell you when we're recording. The problem is we don't record on any kind of regular basis. It's just catch as catch can. So, uh, yeah, that's it'll just be a luck of the draw. But the uh, email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That's right. Ooh. So, uh, why don't we... A dot .net address. Ooh. How 1998 of us. Anyway, let's move on and let's let's read some wonderful letters from some, I assume, wonderful people. Those are from from all of you are wonderful people who write in, who listen to us. Uh, Thank you for doing it. And our first letter comes from Susana. Ooh, hello. Hello, Susana. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, My name is Susana, and I'm a big fan of your podcasts. I just wanted to write and thank you both so much for all the time and effort you put into all the podcasting that Mm. you do. A little about me... I am an American living in the UK. I started listening to the B-Movies podcast when my son was only a few weeks old, because wow. you were the only place I could find that was discussing Netflix's Shadowhunters. Yay! I'd love that it was on Netflix over there. That's interesting. We had it on yeah. Freeform over here. We had it, yeah, we had it on a cable station called Freeform. I know Netflix is a lot different overseas. The, yeah. the deals are really different. I know that was a big deal with Star Trek. Um, yeah, uh, so Star Trek Discovery Star- was on Star Netflix. Star Trek Discovery was on Netflix, and indeed Netflix was paying for part of Discovery. Thinking it was going to be a big hit for them overseas. Yeah, but then, when, then in America, we had to get a whole other streaming service yeah, just to watch now it. Now in America, we have to subscribe to CBS All Access to see Star Trek Discovery. Which is why I've only ever seen the pilot of Star Trek Discovery. Because you didn't need the, the, the service not, to... Yeah. I'm not paying for that. I'm yeah. sorry, I did not have the money, CBS. Mm-hmm. I love Star Trek, and I totally would. But I can't, so I won't. What? You messed up bad. You know what? They're, they're sex toppling down on Star Trek. Yeah, that worked great it, for UPN. Yeah, it's, it's going to be six simultaneous Star Trek programs if they have their way. How much money did UPN lose? $800 million. They relied on over Star the, Trek to, to the, anchor their whole network, uh, and uh, they lost $800 million. It was million. on the air for 11 years, and they lost $800 million. 
Yeah, I love Star Trek. You can't you can't bet all your money on Star Trek. We're mm. off on a tangent. Let's finish. All right, the but um, yeah, uh, Shadowhunters. She says it's a pretty terrible show, but the only thing my sleep deprived mind could handle with a newborn. Oh, I know what that's like. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed your hilarious commentary on the shunting, and fell into listening to your other podcasts as well. Uh, last year, I was lucky enough to get pregnant with my second child. This oh. was brilliant news, but unfortunately, this brought about my hyperemesis again, which is extreme nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Oh, oh that's golly. terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, my, my wife had some maladies as well. Pregnancy mm. just turns your body into a carnival of weirdness. Jeez. Uh, I'm, I'm serious. Weird things happen I, in a woman's I body while you. pregnant. Yeah. Uh, for months, I was incredibly ill, losing a lot of weight and struggling to keep anything down. One of the few things that I genuinely looked forward to during this time were new episodes of Cancel Too Soon and crit- critically acclaimed. Honestly, Aww. hearing about Roger Moore's knee-length white coat with purple lining was a real ray of sunshine during a pretty bleak time. Uh, she's uh. talking about the Persuaders! Exclamation point, which is one of the more spectacularly 1970s shows shows we covered on Cancel Too Soon. And Roger Moore handled his own wardrobe. He like did, he got he his did, own credit. Well, he <laughs> designed he designed those clothes. Yeah. He didn't just get to pick it out. No, I'm just like, saying. He but designed, like, yeah, yeah, he was his own costume designer. Yeah, he was wearing like riding gloves and knee length white coats out in the wilderness. He and, looked cool. And and Tony Curtis is like the, the best he's ever been. Just putting also wearing riding gloves and like jackets with fringe, punching guys in the face. It was a pretty awesome show. If you haven't, if you if you're new to the network and you haven't seen all of our Cancel Too Soon episodes. They're all there. Uh, the Persuaders, just track down that show. That show's a lot of fun. That show, yeah, that show is yeah. a really, really, really excellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she says, I love your podcasts, uh, but because no matter how terrible the show or movie might be, I feel like you always give it a fair shot and find something positive to say, even if it was the performance of the eighth build actor. Plus, I love the tangents on things like Pirates of Dark Water and the like, and I love that you're reviewing Hallmark movies as well. Oh, Susanna, don't encourage him. No, uh, people need joy. It makes me feel like maybe my taste isn't so terrible after all. Your taste is perfect. So in an effort to put a little positivity into the world, I wanted to say thank you. All your time and work is very much appreciated and truly helped me during a really grim time. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this letter. I hope you both have a lovely holiday season. Apologies for the length of the email. Oh my god, uh, thank Susanna. you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. That was just a, sort of a sweet fan letter. So yeah. thank you. Um, um, yeah, thanks. That makes me feel like what we're doing is worth doing yeah, and, and sometimes i wonder you know like it just, there's so much we, and we're not not really sure who we're reaching or where i'm um, just throwing things onto the internet and hoping they find somebody so flinging a pot flinging a pot of wet noodles at the internet wall and seeing what sticks um i totally know what that's like because well, i have a four and a half year old he's mm. he's older now but you know i i he was a newborn at one point. I remember and, your your incredible haze that just lasted for months and months and months. Yeah, well, because you don't have sleep. Yeah. You get, get sleeping wherever you can and passing a baby back and forth. And a baby is a lot of work. I think you passed out on my couch a couple of times without realizing. Oh, uh, once or twice, I think. Yeah, yeah I actually fell asleep. <laughs> fell asleep in your apartment. We were um, happy to have you. Uh, thank you. But yeah, uh, I... Uh, was when my son was born. I was actually marathoning through all the Star Trek series. Mm. So it was, and that oh, was I something that, yeah, I, yeah. I kind of had to interrupt for a while. But my son, luckily, well, maybe not luckily, just his habit is he would only relax if you were holding him and if you were standing. Oh. You couldn't lay him in your lap. He didn't like that. But if you held him in your arm while standing up, that relaxed him. Interesting. And uh, it was even better if you were walking. So I would turn on episodes of Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. and. Like, walk very slow laps around my coffee table for, like, one, two, three hours at a time. Well, I, I, have, a, I have a similar thing. As you well know, uh, audience, I have cats. And uh, we have a kitten. Or he was a kitten. He's yeah. not really anymore. But he was the most rambunctious, excitable, 
clawing, biting kitten I have ever encountered in all of my travels. And, um, yeah, he, he loved being held. Mm-hmm. He liked, I, I've never known a cat who liked being, like, picked up and, like, cuddled. Hmm. Like, the way he did. So that's what we would have to do all the time, was just came around with us. Or he would run around and clop the backs of our legs. <laughs> By the way, uh, there is construction outside. You can probably hear that now. Um, we are on the same block as a strip club. Well, that, now a former strip club. Well, that's what I was about to yeah. say. We, we For many years, we've lived on the same block as a strip club. And the strip club is now defunct and they are currently in the process of breaking it down and building up a whole bunch of really high end apartments that are probably going to make the entire area unlivable. Yeah, it's going to be pretty miserable. That's going to suck. L- LA is just a horrendously constantly mutating place a lot of, in a lot of ways. Mm, sometimes that's great, sometimes it's yeah, really I, I quite know, annoying. I know there's a housing housing uh, crisis, but you know if you te- tear out all the businesses and strip clubs, why would I want to live in that neighborhood? Mm, especially if the places you put in are so expensive that people can't live there, yeah, which yeah, happens yeah. a lot. Anyway, Spot- Especially in our neighborhood. Anyway, um, here is a letter from Brendan. Hello, Brendan. Hi. Uh, Dear Wibbs and Bitney. I can handle it. Yeah, where we are spoonerized. Mm. Uh, In his review for Brewster's Millions, Chicago reader critic David Kerr began by saying, Evidently, Walter Hill woke up one morning, checked his driver's license, and thought it said Arthur Hiller, and set about to work on this crushingly bland comedy. Uh Uh, While the dig at Arthur Hiller is pretty funny, it got me thinking about directors like Hiller who were not auteurs, but were more workmanlike. The funny thing is, I seem to have the term workmanlike being used as both a compliment and a pejorative. Uh, some directors, like Brett Ratner, sorry to bring him up, but this is he is the perfect example, are criticized for just shooting the script and making a movie without any personality or panache. Other directors, like Ron Howard, Sidney Pollack, or Richard Donner, also made films in what could be considered a workmanlike way, but are complimented more than criticized for it. The question I have, how would you discuss work of directors like Arthur Hiller, Ron Howard, or Sidney Pollack, since so much of film criticism is predicated on auteurs? What do you think differentiates a good workmanlike director with a bad workmanlike director? For me, the difference is, I think Ron Howard genuinely cares about the characters and the story at the heart of his movies, even if he doesn't have a distinct style or politique that carries through all of his films. It's hard to see see how Apollo 13 connects with The Dilemma. Mm. I didn't even see The Dilemma. Nobody saw The Dilemma. nobody cared. With uh, uh, Kevin James and Vince Vaughn, right? Was Kevin James in that? Ugh. Uh, uh, but yeah, on the other hand, I'm not, not sure. I, I've actually liked Kevin James movies, mm. but it's never just like, oh, I got to go see Here Comes the Boom. Like, I've never been excited he, for it. He he seems like a, a kind, charismatic man, yeah. but I don't necessarily want to see his movies. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just we have different tastes yeah. than Kevin Kevin James. But anyway. Um, as um, for, yeah, workmanlike directors. I, I, first off, I want to take, take, take apart the word workmanlike. You know, mm. we got taken a task not that long ago by mm. uh, no less than the director of Caddyshack 2. Mm. Alan Arkush. Uh, for describing him uh, as, quote, a journeyman. Mm. And when we used the term, we meant someone who does a lot of work for other people. However, that could also be interpreted as someone who lacks their own style and mm. maybe isn't, isn't good enough. And um, so... When I use the word journeyman, I usually mean you do a lot of work for hire. You do a lot of episodic television. You do or, a lot of you know stuff for studios that doesn't necessarily feel like a passion project. I, I think but that doesn't mean it's bad. No, another part of journeyman, I feel, is also that you work in a lot of different modes. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I would describe 
John Carpenter is perhaps workmanlike in his style, but I wouldn't describe him as a journeyman because he tends to hover around a certain genre. Well, he he also uh, has a lot of control over his own projects right, traditionally, right, right. so I I wouldn't say that either. In um, fact, he puts his name in the title of all of his movies. Yeah, it's, he's, that's in his contract actually. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to workmanlike. Uh, yeah, to an extent, you're looking at someone who isn't necessarily throwing on a lot of flair and flash and is just shooting the material. Some of the best movies ever made have been from people just shooting the material. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about... I'm not the biggest Arthur Hiller nut. I haven't seen quite a few films, actually, Arthur Hiller has done. I've never seen... Um, uh, I've never seen Love Story, for example. I know it's a big hit. Oh, it's, it's, I know. it's awful. <laughs> I, I've heard it's awful, but I've never seen it, and it was okay. a big deal. And at some point, I know I need to get around to mm-hmm. it. Um, I've never seen uh, the Out of Towners, even though, of course, I know all about it. Okay. Um, so, fair enough. But what I what I can say mm-hmm. is that when it comes to someone like Ron Howard, for example. I don't think of Ron Howard as a workmanlike director. I don't think of him as a journeyman director. I think of Ron Howard as an underappreciated genre filmmaker. Hmm. Someone who, because they don't have a particularly singular style, they can bounce in between different genres very easily. And then you look at Ron Howard's career, the reason why I think people respect him is because he has made so many different types of films... Pretty darn well. He's got some duds. He's very prolific. Of course, he'll have some no. duds. But he did made up. Did you see Inferno? Of course you didn't. Nobody did. Right. But at the, at the same time, he did Parenthood, which is a wonderful film about suburban family life in the 1980s. He did Splash, which is a hilarious romantic comedy about a mermaid. He did uh, Apollo 13, which is, I think, still arguably the best film ever set in, like, outer space that's, like, plausible. That's not, like, Star Mm. Wars. He did a Star Wars, which wasn't even a bad Star Wars. It just wasn't Mm. particularly good. I think it was a bad Star Wars. Whatever. Well, whatever. It it wasn't his, though. I think if he had, like, been given the project from the start, it would have been, like, a lot more adventurous because he has that kind of sensibility about it. Perhaps. But, you know, he did Willow, which was, was, I think, quite excellent in its own way. Um, And I think that's the reason why he was brought into Star Wars is because they knew Ron Howard will come in and he will make the movie that needs to be made right now because he's very adaptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, who was the other example in there? I thought uh, there was another uh, one besides Arth- Ron Howard. Oh, uh, Arthur, Arthur Hiller, Arthur Hiller uh, Ron Howard, and um, b- 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 Pollock. Oh, yeah, and Sidney Pollock. I think Sidney Pollock is another one who made a lot of films in very different modes. He made great spy thrillers. He made great comedies. He made great serious dramas. Uh, he made a great legal thriller, you know? He was someone who very easily could adapt to different types of storytelling, specifically because he wasn't a conventional auteur. Yeah. That said, some people are simply workmanlike, and Brett Ratner is a really good example yeah. of this, where even his best movie, which I would argue is probably Hercules, mm-hmm. isn't particularly good. Like, Hercules is fine. I can watch Hercules, <laughs> mostly because of Dwayne Johnson. The, the, like, Dwayne Johnson is Hercules. That writes itself. But, I think uh, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker do fine together in uh, a serviceable action comedy rush hour. Didn't yeah. need two sequels, but, you know, yeah. it was a big enough hit. Family Man is fine. I actually think Hallmark did better things with that idea than Brett Ratner did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, he's not a very interesting filmmaker. And one of the things that's frustrating about someone like Brett Ratner is that he attracts interesting projects. Yeah. And then he doesn't give him anything. Like... He did Red Dragon, 
That was yeah. that was a fu- that was the original Hannibal Lecter novel. It had been previously made by Michael Mann as I think one of the best films of the 1980s, Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And he had he assembled a dynamite cast, and Brett Ratner is bringing nothing to that. Like it's just the cast doing the heavy lifting. And if Red Dragon works, it works because of the cast, not because of the direction. Mm-hmm. The direction is actually appallingly boring <laughs> in that film. Yeah. Um. So. There are degrees, but that's my, that's what I think. I feel like I've dominated the conversation. No. What do you want to say? No, it's fine. Um, this idea that well, I mean, I'd like to go to the premise of the letter, which is that uh, the idea that film criticism is uh, inherently auteur driven, and mm. it's true that a lot of critics have just sort of naturally adapted auteur theory, which is something that uh, was suggested by Cahiers de Cinema back in the day. About how if you're going to credit a, a film to a single author, like if it belongs to any one particular voice, then it should be the director. Mm. I remember there was a push at some time in the early 2000s to rather than have saying like a, a director's name film to have it be a writer's name film. They wanted the screenwriter to be the owner of it. Right. But in the studio system, uh, the screenwriter doesn't necessarily have a lot of control. And well, also, there are the, many other writers idea, who get pulled in. The idea was to push it in that direction. Give the yeah. writers more control and the directors mm. would be a secondary figure. Um, there have been a lot of critics, uh, historically, who have hated this idea that a film belongs to the director alone. Now, this is true of certain projects. There are a lot of uh, writer-slash-directors who stay very close in control of their own projects and make sure it looks exactly the way they want. Like Stanley Kubrick, well, yeah, like for example. Your Kubrick's, yeah. your, my boss, Quentin Tarantino, is one, another one yeah, of those. They micromanage, yeah. Um, but a lot of critics are also, you know, know enough about filmmaking to know that it's not just one person making a film. It's actually a team of hundreds or sometimes thousands or even tens of thousands of people in the case of these gigantic blockbusters that have, like, special effects teams all over the world. Uh, so The, the counter-argument to that, just real fast, uh, though, is that it is the director's responsibility to keep all of those thousands of people yeah. working under one unified idea of the story they're mm. supposed to tell. Ergo, but, it is the director's responsibility to make sure all of those tasks create a cohesive film. To, to be fair, yes. When you're dealing with a big sort of commercial product where like producers and a lot of other hands are involved though, like that are actually designing things before the director is even hired, then that's less significant. Sure. Because yeah, the fair. studio is actually the auteur in that scenario. But uh, Pauline Kael famously didn't like auteur theory because of that. She, yeah. she thought that it's a discredit to all of the people who are working on this film to say that it belongs solely to the director. Um, well, I mean, but at the same time, at the same time, I think that the auteur theory in the Cahiers du Cinema mold, mm. um, a lot of the films that they were ascribing auteur theory to were studio films at a time when studios were just as hands-on. Yeah. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock was one of the uh, filmmakers that they had labeled an auteur. Mm. And Hitchcock made studio films for mm. the vast majority of his career. And I think the issue isn't that... Well, let me, let me rephrase I think the problem, the biggest problem with auteur theory is when we ascribe it out of hand. You directed mm. it, therefore it is your vision, it is yours. Yeah. Whereas I feel like auteur theory kind of came a little bit more out of your vision was so strong, even a studio system couldn't hide it. No, there you go. So, like, if you're such a, if, like, Tim Burton works in the studio system, you can always tell a Tim Burton movie. Yeah. To an extent, one could argue that he has earned an auteur label. If you believe an auteur label is valid, which again, if you don't, I actually completely agree. I just see counter arguments. All right. Do, so yeah, do, um, do you do you not like it? 
Pardon? Do you not like the auteur label? Uh, no. It, well, I mean, it's it's a notion I've been operating in so long. It's hard for me. It, I couldn't write a review without it. Essentially, yeah. I'd be looking at the director. I'd be thinking of a voice mm. uh, while I'm watching a film, and I think that's why a lot of uh, critics actually get frustrated with a lot of like bigger studio products that are clearly the result of like studio tinkering. Yeah, because they're not getting that authorial voice from anybody or anything. It's not, mm. there's not like one clear. Uh, vision, or there's not like a passionate need to tell this kind of story. It feels that's when uh, critics start saying the film, the phrase, "This feels like a film product," yeah, rather so, the, than a piece of art or like a work of of an author who has something important to say. Like when you're watching Black Panther and you realize, mm-hmm. oh, Ryan Coogler made this. Like Ryan yeah, Coogler like, is like, all there's, over There's actually this film. some ideas in here yeah. that that you know are, are being made from a director rather than by, you know, a studio mandate. And then you watch Ant-Man and the Wasp, and it's fine. It's a cute little movie, mm-hmm. and Peyton Reed certainly has his own snappy style. But He's got a good sense of humor at the very least. But at yeah. the same time, I bet there's at least a dozen other filmmakers who could have made exactly the same movie uh, yeah, because the yeah. studio wanted that movie. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about the Russos as well. But, you know, that's yeah. the, the, they're, they're doing the studio's work, and they're doing it exemplary, doing an exemplary job. But uh, yeah. yeah, especially especially now that they've branched out into the larger Avengers stuff, which mm-hmm. is, on some level, a lot of that's just keeping the plates in the air. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. a miracle that they did it. I, the Endgame, I, I know you're not as huge a fan as I was, and even mm-hmm. I'm not nearly as huge a fan as a lot of other people. It's probably not even going to make my top ten of the year or nothing. But that's an impressive achievement in terms of just keeping all that just, shit yeah, together. Like, like the, the technicals and the editing and the pacing was yeah. all, all just fantastic. Yeah, all fantastic. If, if they're nominated for Best Director purely on how workmanlike it was, <laughs> like to just keep that movie together, I'd be like, you know what? Fine. No, that's a good way to bring it back around to the yeah. workmanlike director. So, yeah, being a good workman is not a, a pejorative. No. But it has been used as such because it, it also suggests that you have no authorial voice. I'm not sure if the the Russos would describe themselves as workmen or not. I, I think so. I think some auteurs even describe themselves as workmen. I got to interview uh, Stephen Frears once. Oh yeah, there you go. Uh, and golly, it was a frustrating interview because <laughs> um, you know Stephen Frears writes some pretty or he he makes some pretty rich films that oh, yeah. are, are about you know very complex uh, human foibles and uh, just let's, just in case you don't know the name offhand, uh, he did uh, the Grifters mm, and, and the he Queen did, and yeah. Philomena and you know, yeah. Dangerous th- Liaisons was his, I think, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, back in the day. Yeah. Um, I was interviewing about uh, the biopic he did of uh, Lance Armstrong, which nobody saw. Totally ben flew under ben the radar. Foster played Lance Armstrong. It was great. It was directed by Stephen Frears. Nobody heard of it. Yeah. Just got no push in America. Damn shame. If it had uh, been on Netflix, everyone would have been like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, look, Ben Foster. We're finally paying attention. <laughs> great, great, great actor. He tries so hard. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, he he sees himself as a workman director. Mm. He just he get he's handed a script. He's like, okay, how can I shoot this story? That's all I'm going to do. And I think he's too interesting a person to let things just sort of lie. But when I try to engage him, engage him on uh, when I try to engage him on like the ideas in the film, he just sort of shut me down. It's like th- this seems to be about sort of international cycling and the politics and the interplay between these countries. What sort of political statement were you trying to make in this age of Brexit? It's like I was just shooting the script, man. I don't know. I just like come on, Stephen Frears, give me something here. <laughs> I, here's the thing: I, I don't think he didn't think that there was anything political about it. 
I think at some point you just don't want to talk about it. I, I well, that's at what I got. He, I think I think he's also one of those directors who feels like it's on the screen. I don't need to talk about it. Yeah, I made it. I said that's David Lynch too. He doesn't. Yeah. A he's bad with words, admittedly so. He says that, and uh, he says when I make a film, it's I made the film. Yeah. What, what do you What do you want to say with this film? It's in the film. It's right <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. It's the, the naked lunch right on the fork in front of you. All right, moving on. All right, uh, here's a letter from David. Hi, David. Uh, hi, William and Whitney. I hope you're both doing well. Oh, come see, come see. Yeah. Um, Ups and downs. So I finally saw Joker this week. Okay. And that was a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> uh, how a movie this aggressively average and empty is generating this much, quote, discourse is beyond me. One thing I've noticed is the positive marketing slash reviews for the movie is people throwing out big juicy poster quotes like, Joker is the film of the year. In my opinion, it's really not. And I gather from your reviews that you don't think so either. No. It's not making my top ten. I mean, it certainly made an impact. There's no denying that. No, but you don't have to be good yeah. to make an impact. <laughs> I feel this whole notion of film of the year conflates a number of elements that don't really have much of a correlation to one another, such as overall quality, financial success, the conversation surrounding the movie, its cultural impact, and its message. For 2018, for example, I would consider Black Panther on a macro level to be the supposed film of the year. That's because it's a huge, huge success. Honestly, yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably about right. Uh, but on a micro level, I feel films such as Eighth Grade, Black Klansman, and Blind Spotting could be thought of as, as such. Films that uh, sans the lack of financial success would fit a certain criteria of this showy title, film of the year. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering how the two of you would, if you had to, define a film as the film of the year. <laughs> If you were ever to throw out the quote in hopes of getting the prime spot on a Blu-ray cover, what would you look for in that movie? Thanks always and have a great day, David. Uh, that's a that's a phrase I don't recall using. I may have I've, at yeah. some point, but I, it's something I've, at least in the latter part of my career, the more recent era of my career, I... I don't even like putting out one of the best films of the year. I reserve that. Mm. Like, I will use that, but only yeah. if I am 100% confident that at the end of the year, this will make a list. Yeah. Like, even, like even, at least honorable mention, but top 10 is the idea. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not confident about it, it means nothing. And honestly, you can't even do that most of the way through the year. Mm. I think film of the year is something we can ascribe after the fact. I think nowadays, yeah. like you say, Black Panther was the film of 2018. I'm not going to fight that. That's mm. that movie made a huge tidal wave. Like that was a big yeah, deal. And then they gave the best picture to Green Book. Um, yeah, I would have been so much. I would have been so yeah. much happier if Black Panther had won. I, I think film uh, of the year uh, t- to use it responsibly would combine uh, several disciplines. First of all, you have to be a film critic. You have to be aware of everything that's out there. Okay, you don't say that had to be a film critic, but you do need to be extremely well versed in the film of the all, year. All of the films that came out during the year. Yeah. And you also have to, without the benefit of context, figure out what that year uh, could be defined by in the country you live in. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I, geographical borders only make sense just so you can limit it to. Mm. Let, let's just say, let's uh, just say uh, the culture. The so, okay. Let's just say the culture. The culture. Yeah, and cultures. Well, there's how, there's how varying you, cultures. How but... would you define the culture? What's going on in the world right now yeah. that is being directly expressed in a feature film? That came out of uh, at the same time, right? Or how is that film spearheading something that was always lurking but hadn't been mentioned before, right? Um, and that's really difficult to do. And I think if you were to do it correctly, mm-hmm. and and I know this is going to sound pretentious as hell, but the film of the year would probably be something most people have never heard of, mm. uh, because I feel like a lot of the more daring work that is being done in terms of sociological 
immediacy is usually a little bit off to the side. I, now, I, in terms hmm. of that other definition where it's picking up the culture and spearheading something. Yeah. Uh, and those are those are the kind of popular films that are seen by everyone. Hence your Black Panther. Yeah. Which was, I think, like the second highest grossing film of the year behind a Star Wars or maybe another Marvel film. I think it, I think it ended up being number one overall. Well, I, I I know Infinity War came out that same year. So oh, yeah. Been, you're oh, probably might have been right. outstripped by you know, another film in that same Still, series. Still, it was ridiculous. I can try looking yeah. that up, actually. Just, yeah, for, it, it just, just for the sake of clarity. It did gross a huge amount of money. Yeah, no one's arguing. Like, like more than the studio even anticipated. I think it was like yeah. they, they released it in February. Like I think they, I think this was going to be like the lead into something, and it ended up making a huge amount. Yeah, and I think because of the importance of that series of films to the public, and that this film within it was actually starting to make some really salient sociological points about the year 2018, the year it came out, mm. that would definitely make it a contender. I would say I would say so, too. I think you want to try to find both. I think there's either mm. two possibilities. Mm. You either accept that there are two movies of the year, mm-hmm. which would be uh, the one that drove the conversation and drove the culture, and the film that spoke to the year more than any other, in which case something like Blind Spotting, which a lot of people didn't see, would of mm. course be right up there. Mm. Um, by the way, see Blind Spotting; it's great. Um, Blind Spotting is terrific. Really excellent film; should not have been overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think, I think honestly, I think it behooves us to find the film that does both: mm-hmm. a film that connects with a lot of people because it is relevant, because it is right now. Something mm-hmm. like Get Out, for example. Okay, uh, which was a huge hit, but it was a huge hit because it was giving people something they mm-hmm. hadn't seen, yeah. and really wanted. Uh, so when I think of let's for example like if I were to pick the movie of this year, so, yeah, taking yeah. taking into consideration it's, it's, that I haven't it's, seen it's, everything, mid November, mid yeah, November, I've seen a lot, okay, and I've seen a lot of the bigger films, and let's see if I were to pick for this year, mm-hmm. Parasite. Parasite is the film of the year. I think Parasite is the film of the year. Yeah, I think it, I think it is an economic anxiety kind of yeah. Not th- not, not to borrow a, a misused phrase, but yeah. But, but I think it's accurate, and I think it fits that film very 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 well. Uh, I think it was Walter Shaw who had a uh, uh, a line which is uh, rich people think parasite. The word parasite refers to the poor people in the film, <laughs> yeah. which is very accurate. Um, but. Uh, yeah, no, the uh the the I think the other thing is that it's it's not just an independent film, it's a highly successful independent film mm-hmm. that a lot of people are talking about and a lot of people are seeing and they're seeing it because this feels like um, the movie of right now. Yeah. Uh, uh so that would probably be my pick for this year based mm-hmm. on what I've seen already. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that I might look back and say yeah, in retrospect, Us was doing the same thing, okay. you know? Like, I think that movie's pretty mm. great, you know? I'm trying to think of what else would maybe be this year, this year's number one, like, film of the year. you have any other thoughts, any other films that you think all, would be? All, all of my favorite films are, like, period, like, don't necessarily link up to, uh, you know, the culture in 2019, necessarily. They yeah, because there's between like being larger, the best larger, film of the year. Larger human themes that sort of link at any time. Like, there's a lot of films that I would say are worthy of being called maybe the best movie of the year, but yeah. they don't necessarily represent 2019. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even sure Parasite would be my number one of the year. I'll just I'll just say that Sorry to Bother You is also the, the film of this year. <laughs> Might be the film of the decade in some regards. I love Sorry to Bother You. It's I so know good. you do. I know you do, mm. sir. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's move on. All right. It's an interesting right. conversation. I actually really like it when we disseminate the buzzwords that get used a lot without a yeah. lot of thought. 
Mm. You know, like, what does it mean to call something the movie of the year? That's a really good question. I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, The L.A. Weekly, uh, back when they were a good paper, uh, were (laughs) – they had a – I remember. I do, very fondly. And there was – they did a year-end roundup every year, uh, like in their best of the year uh, issues, where they tried to – cull through all of the reviews that had been printed during the year and like just around the country and sort of the bigger publications and tried to count the number of times some some jagoff critic used the word masterpiece mm-hmm. they were trying to take the 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 sting out of the word masterpiece because that thing's just bandied about like crazy it's some kind of mad masterpiece this is a ma- surely if you're going by like a strict definition of the word there could only be one masterpiece per master right no no No, that's not the definition of masterpiece. Somebody can make several masterpieces? Yeah, the idea is that it is a piece of work that demonstrates your Mm. mastery of the Mm. art form or the skill. You can have all kinds of... Every film you make could be a masterpiece. It just proves your mastery of the form. Masterpiece is not singular, is not mm. part of the definition of masterpiece. It never was. It's not. It's not like the one masterpiece nope. to show to ex- ex- Which exemplify is why have- the the mastery you have, and all all others are below it. No, because mm-hmm. you can keep making. What if you make another film that's even more masterful? The other one so is still other a piece one, of mastery, right? No, it gets demoted. It it's off get the demoted. list. Now. It's still you still represented absolute mm-hmm. mastery of the work. Nah. It, this is why we have things like this is this is Alfred Hitchcock's greatest masterpiece. Mm-hmm. There are more than one. Mm-hmm. That's where I take it anyway. Okay, I I I always thought the uh, the word masterpiece include like precluded that there was just one of them. Well, like unless was, unless you one... can only be masterful once, yeah. but I don't think that's the case. Like it was the the one thing to bring you into like the qual the I, to qualify you for like the circle of masters. I'm not a hundred percent on this, but I'm pretty sure the reason why we have the word masterpiece and someone correct me if I'm wrong, mm. please. Is because people needed to enter things like guilds. Yeah, yeah. And in order to do that, you needed to prove your mastery of something. It's Mm -hmm. not to prove that you were the greatest in the world. It's to prove that, you know, if you were entering a carpentry guild, look at this house. Mm -hmm. This house is a masterpiece. This house is proof of my mastery of carpentry. Boom. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can totally do more than one. If, okay. if you're a master, you should be doing more than okay. one. Well, the- if you're, if you're, you think you're a master of a craft and you've only made one masterpiece, maybe that was luck. <laughs> you ever consider it? Maybe it's luck. You know, I'm not going to kick out like John Kennedy Tool or anything or Hubo just because they only made one piece before they died. Those yeah, are well, still good pieces of work. I'm not saying that at all. And, that's, yeah. and obviously those are extenuating circumstances. Yeah. And you don't have to make everything you do a masterpiece in order to be great at something. But, uh, yeah, I don't think masterpiece, you, there's only one. I think that's very limiting. Well, that's the point, is to limit it. Why, why are we limiting Because we're things? making short lists of the best. We're not just sort of throwing everything we want into a hole. That's, that well, was kind of the idea. You shouldn't throw it into a hole if it's a masterpiece. I suppose not. There's room in the world for a lot of masterpieces. I agree, I I agree with you. <laughs> but when it comes to something like canonization, uh-huh. there has to be a limit. Anyway. Uh, here's a letter from Brett. Uh, Dear the beautiful Bibbs and Whitney. Oh, thanks. You are beautiful, Bibbs. Thank you. Uh, I have always had a curious eye for movie ratings. That is G, PG, R, etc. Right. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is, uh, what do you think of the American... Ra- do you think the American rating system is flawed? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> like all systems, it's not perfect, but is there a way to make a fair rating system? With so many films being criticized for their ratings, from 8th grade to The Dark Knight to The King's Speech... Should we even have a rating system at all? 
why are movies even giving ratings in the first place? Mm. I live in Canada, and excluding the the one screening where uh, I was denied entry, I was denied entry to John Wick Chapter Two. Weird. I find the Canadian rating systems at least a bit of, a little bit more fair. G is the same as the MP, MPAA. Mm-hmm. Suitable for all audiences. Uh, uh, PG is given to. The American equivalent PG thirteen movies. That's how we used to have and, PG, and yeah. even a few R rated ones like Rocket Man. So Rocket Man is rated PG in Canada. Okay, fourteen uh, A under fourteen needs somebody over fourteen with them is given to most American R rated movies. Anything from Prisoners to It Chapter Two, and eighteen A somebody from fourteen to seventeen needs somebody over eighteen to go with them. Uh, is mostly given to violent action films like Logan or Wild Wild Rides like The Wolf of Wall Street. And R is the same as NC-17 in America okay. and is rarely given to new theatrical releases. Right. Mostly old horror movies and action films like Friday the 13th Part 2 and Die Hard. Really got R rating. All right. Uh, do you think this is a better system than the MPAAs? Uh, and what qualities of a movie, violence, language, or sexuality should be the most enforced in a perfect world? Keep up the amazing work, Brett. Oh, golly. Um, Boys out of can of worms. Yeah, we'll try not to go on too long about this because the MPAA has been contentious from the start. Right. Uh, the MPAA, and actually let's, let's, let's just go all the way back to the beginning of cinema real fast because the history of movie ratings is complicated. We don't have to go back to the Hayes Code. No, can... no I'm just going to make it super fucking fast. All right. When movies were initially made and distributed, there was no rating system. Mm. There wasn't. They were just made movies. Problem is, is that they people who made movies started running into censorship boards, which were very prevalent at the time. Uh, and there were local censorship boards that would have things like, well, there's too much. We ran into this uh, uh, recent Recently, um, I was doing research on an early version of Brewster's Millions that was oh, made yeah, in the yeah. 1940s. Uh, it's coming back around to Brewster's Millions, funnily enough. <laughs> but uh, there's an early version of Brewster's Millions, which was uh, banned in, I want to say Tennessee? But it was banned in one state because the people of color in the movie were treated as equals. Oh, gosh. It's so and disgusting. That's yeah. so gross. So... There was, and people were doing things because of nudity or sex or violence or l- inappropriate language that nowadays we wouldn't even consider swearing. Mm. Um, so it was weird and it was frustrating, and studios were very, very concerned that the government would step in and censor everything. Yeah. So they created their own system of censorship, self censorship, to prevent government censorship. And this was called the Hayes Code, a.k.a. the Production Code. And there was a very rigid set of rules, which every movie that came out of Hollywood for many decades, at least like 30, Mm. I think closer to 40, uh, had to follow. And these rules included things like, no one can get divorced happily. Yeah. It's got to be a terrible tragedy if someone gets uh, divorced. And the, the rules became really weird and arbitrary. Like, uh, if, if a man and a woman are in bed and they kiss, one of them has to have one foot on the floor. Like, they can't be in a reclined position and kissing at yeah. the same time. You can't have uh, uh, open-mouth kissing and closed-mouth kissing cannot last longer than, I think, two or three seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh... Gosh, it, it, just the, the the weird details, the inches of cleavage allowed on screen, like mm-hmm. a, a woman's a woman's breast uh, was. There's actually a really funny scene that addresses this in Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Yeah, where he he wanted to put like really buxom women in his movies, and he this like really stern board because you can't have busty women in your movies showing off all their cleavage. Well, I will mathematically and, prove that yeah, these and, and breasts he, are the and same he just pulled, size. Pull over a guy and said, "Here's my mathematician. I'm not a mathematician. Shut up, you're a mathematician." <laughs> and, and he's like, and he's given like these measuring devices, saying, "Well, in these movies, the cleavage is only X, but in these other ones, you approved, it's even bigger." So it's like this. 
so stupidly anyway uh, the Hayes Code started losing its efficacy and power around the late 50s and early mm. 1960s thanks to films like Psycho and as a result movies started to get more ribald movies started to have more swearing more, more and violence violent, yeah. and so and again concerned that the government would censor them which had only just happened with comics like yeah. the government was all over comics and comics, comics was, code authority yeah, yeah which you know they had to start their own system again there as well uh, so they created the Motion Picture Association of America to sort of create a buffer and sort of let basically put the impetus on audiences to decide what they want to see mm. but give them fair warning yeah. so we started off with a G mm. and a G rating was it's fine for everybody general yeah, yeah. PG parental no, guidance it was actually GP at first yeah well okay GP or later PG, parental guidance suggested there's going to be some naughty spits. Yeah. There might be a little swearing, a little violence, but it's fine. R-rated, intended for adults, I but think, use your own judgment, I bring your it, kids. I think at the beginning it went straight to X. It did, and yeah, then it went it was, to X. It was, it was G, uh, GP, and X, I think was the no, first only I three thought, at the beginning. I thought, I thought it went to X, but X was pretty extreme, and it was only used in rare instances. Mm-hmm. However, there were some major films. Uh, Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture, rated X. Yeah. It's about a, 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 a male sex worker played by John Voight. Uh, I think Clockwork Orange was originally released with an yeah, X rating, although it was eventually indeed. re-rated into an R. Yeah. Um, so the reason why the MPAA exists is to let the studios off the hook, more basically. Or, more or less. And, um, and, and, and theoretically yeah. to give parents some idea of what's in a movie without having to do a ton mm. of research about it. Now, is there a system that, can, that is actually workable, that you know, can actually work and, and, uh, you know, in an ideal world, as you say? Uh, the answer is yes, and we have it, and it's called the MPAA rating system, and it's fine. The problem is the amount of credence the public puts in that, mm. and the amount of censorship businesses put on that. Yeah. Certain theaters won't book films with certain ratings. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, like, in X, yeah. or MT17 as it and, is and now. MT17 it is now. Uh, certain uh, video distrib- distributors, like Walmart, mm. won't uh, sell NC 17 rated films, except under special circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also studios who will, if a, if the MPAA, all, the, all that's supposed to happen is, mm. you submit your film to the MPAA, the MPAA watches it and says, we've talked it over, we think it's an art. Sometimes you can you can push back a little bit, but usually you can, you can, it's pretty a, straightforward. You can appeal the board, and it's it's all of course very secretive. Uh, Kirby Dick, uh, the documentarian, made a film called "This Film Is Not Yet Rated," all about kind of the hypocrisy and the weird practices of the MPAA and how mm-hmm. their attitudes towards film are really kind of misguided. Mm-hmm. Like like when you appeal your film, one of mm-hmm. the people who's on the appeal board, at least this is how it was when he made the documentary, mm-hmm. a priest. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why? That's ridiculous. It? Like they have, they have a priest, they have a parent, uh, and sort of the the circumstances under. I know they like take tone into account, which is a difficult thing to define. Right. Like the Conjuring, for mm-hmm. example, was uh, originally supposed to be a PG thirteen. That's what they were aiming for, but it was just so damn scary mm-hmm. that they thought, well, no thirteen year old should see this. We've we've learned our yeah. lesson from Poltergeist. I don't care if there is no swearing or violence. This is clearly an R. Yeah. They're not. Wrong. They're not wrong. That was fine. And, and, you know, I think if the people who run the theaters, and, you know, there are American film markets and they give screeners to a lot of people. If the people who run the theaters were granted the time or they had somebody on staff to review these things and, you know, make sure how these things were going to be enforced, mm-hmm. then the people who are selling tickets, the shiftless teenagers who don't give a damn, uh, those are the enforcers, by the way. That's the yeah. front line. And that's it. And what happens, uh, if, th- what happens if someone gets into the movie? 
Nothing. Nothing happens. No, they, it's they not might, against the law. They might go home and a, you know, a parent might complain and the theater might get in trouble, but and no the worst law case scenario, has been That yeah. teenager at the front might get fired. That's like the worst that can happen. Yeah. Well, and, and the theater could get pilloried by the community. That's, yeah, but, but, that's, you know. but that's, it's not, it's not so a thing. There, there's actually no law that says a child can't go see an NC-17 rated film. If I were a teenager, I wouldn't sell a ticket to a, a oh, child. Oh, God heavens, yeah. no. No, that's, that's, for, for that's a wide variety of reasons. Really, I, I think good. that's really incredibly irresponsible. Yes. I think decent people think that's irresponsible. But, yeah, uh, yeah there's no actual federal or state law uh, enforcing film ratings. It's just a suggestion. It always has been. I think the problem is we stopped taking it as such. Yeah. Well, it became I, kind of gospel and started to dictate the uh, the content of something. Exactly. And that's where, that's where we ended into a problematic phase. It's not – because, again, as conceived – the MPAA, more or less fine. Mm-hmm. You know, again, you just send in your movie. They tell you what it is. You go, great. Mm-hmm. We're proud of this movie. We'll release it as is. And then you try to make your money. <clears throat> but then there are some studios who's like, oh, we weren't going for an R. We want this to be a PG-13 so, so that we can sell more tickets. Can sell tickets yeah. And instead of just saying, but again, oh, you can still buy, sell those tickets. I know it's, you can. But like, my point is this. So what happens is studios will cut films. Mm-hmm. To hit that PG-13, or worse, if it hits an NC-17, where a lot of theaters won't show it, mm. you, there's a feeling that there's a desperate need to cut it down to an R. And at that point, you really start tinkering with what, well, clearly the filmmakers thought it was necessary to put that in there. Mm. Now you're messing with the directorial vision, but you didn't have to do that. Yeah, I, if, I, and, and to be fair, porn has a lot of responsibility in this because porn, the, porn took took the X rating away from the MPAA. Yeah, the vast majority of films that were X rated, and these films, by the way, didn't go to the MPAA. They just threw the letter X on it because they knew it was tint, was titillating. Mm. But the vast majority of films that were rated X when the the, uh, the category was first invented, mostly in the seventies, were porn. Mm. Vast <laughs> majority porn used to be in theaters by the truckload. And as a result, people quickly associated X with pornography. Now, there's nothing technically wrong with pornography, at least in a vacuum, but it's not what we're necessarily going for as a studio, and we don't want people to think we just put out a porno. What, what I really love is that, you know, Rated X, that was something the MPAA came up with, and it was for adults. And then the porn kind of co-opted it and said, oh, no, we, you want X-rated. So we're going to say this is Rated X. And then some other porn studio says, oh, yeah, you're Rated X. We're Rated Double X. It's like... <laughs> What does that even mean? Like, it's extra adult? Yeah. And then, and then Triple X was where it kind of topped out. Yeah, we stopped so, at Triple X. And to this day, you still see Triple X to mean pornography. Yeah, and uh, you know what you never see anymore? Double mm. X. Yeah. You see X-rated. Mm-hmm. X-rated is still sometimes used. Triple X, often. Mm. Double X, never seen him. Nobody ever says double X no, anymore. It's like, or, or, I, <laughs> and I'm surprised nobody has like, gone the, the full nine. So, yeah, well, we're quintuple X. Yes. We're 80,000 X. <laughs> We're X infinity plus one. Yeah. <laughs> X so, infinity. So the reason why the X rating was, which initially didn't necessarily hinder a film. Midnight Cowboy was a hit. It won best picture. There wasn't necessarily a stigma at the time. The reason why is because porn co-opted it, studios balked, a lot of newspapers decided we're not going to sell advertising for pornography because we're a quote-unquote family newspaper. Mm-hmm. And as a result, if a, main, if a major studio wanted to make an X-rated movie, they couldn't advertise it, so they had to knock it back down to mm-hmm. an R. It's a complicated, crappy system. Yeah. What can we do? Like a, a, Allowing for the possibility that the, theoretically nothing should be wrong with this, but mm-hmm. we've all screwed it up. Yeah. Is there anything we can do? Um, we need to advertise it less. The rating, the rating, the rating of a film. 
Okay. That needs to be information you get at the theater and not from the preview and not from any, any other source. Mm-hmm. You can go to the MPAA website and they'll tell you their rating. Mm. But stop putting it at the front of the movie's trailers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't, don't advertise it in all the trades. The, the rating is only a suggestion. Okay. Only by the MPAA. It's their responsibility. I like that. Yeah. I do. I, I need to think about and, that a little bit yeah, more. You, 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 adver- you advertise that, it I... on the MPAA website. You advertise it at the theater. These are the ratings that the MPAA has given to these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you imagine a world where there just were no ratings and you just went to see a movie and... Mm. I mean, here's the deal, well, though. It, I, do, it, I, okay, do believe, I do believe, I do believe mm. in some degree of preparation. Because yeah. if you go to a movie theater, you just want to see a movie, and it's surprisingly, shockingly violent. Yeah. And that's not what you wanted. Mm-hmm. That's probably worth complaining about. That's probably... There's a reason we have things called trigger warnings, mm-hmm. which some people have co-opted and use as a derogatory term. Just as so- something that makes you angry, which is a, not what that is. No, a trigger mm-hmm. is something that activates a in, un, like an instinctively... Negative mental response. Like a, Frequently, it's post-traumatic stress. Yeah, fl- a flight response uh, in response to past trauma. Now, when you're when you're triggered in a situation like this, you're not just upset because you saw something. You are reliving something horrible. Yeah, and it's not some like some topics, for instance, like about like abuse, for instance, mm-hmm. like stories about abuse might have like a trigger warning. This is a story about abuse. If you are a sufferer. This might have some triggering things in it for you. You should. Pro- you um, don't want to be blindsided but, by that. It's not yeah. fair. But you know, an, an actual trigger might be something that's completely innocuous, but it triggers one person and because it lays to have bad associations with. Yeah, them. we can't control everything, but yeah. we can make some reasonable, mm-hmm. like we can yeah. put together a reasonable warning system. Yeah, like I there think. was uh, in the movie, um, I feel pretty. Uh, Amy Schumer says, I, I thought you were just dumb. Like, he's talking, she's talking to Emily Ratajkowski, who's a model. Mm-hmm. It's like, I thought you were just some dumb model, but it turns out you're really smart. And she, I, th- I just thought you were a dumb model. She keeps, keeps saying dumb. And Emily Ratajkowski says, could you stop saying dumb? It's kind of a trigger for me. And, you, like, you, this story kind of unfolds. Like, yeah. she was called dumb a lot, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the word dumb for that character right. was, was a trigger warning. Um I agree there needs to be some kind of uh, warning to content, especially if artists are going to be free to make whatever kind of films they want. Yeah. Um, also, you might not want your 14-year-old going to see something that has a lot of really explicit sex acts in it. Yeah. Because it's going to put things in their head that you don't know to have a conversation about. It, it might create unrealistic um, expectations. Yeah. Or if, all sorts if, of things. If, you're, if you're going with them, then you know, that's going to be a complicated conversation you're going to have to have. But yeah. if they're sneaking off and seeing whatever and getting all this information, you as a parent would be happy to discuss with them but don't know to discuss with them, then that's kind mm-hmm. of an issue. And, of course, it makes the assumption that as a parent you'd be happy to discuss that with them anyway. Well, I, I would hope the parent would be responsible enough to have that conversation. I would, too, but about, that's not a guarantee. And, you know, and you know, maybe you don't... Maybe something is so horrendous that you do want to sort of shield... Like, I wouldn't want my 14-year-old just to go see, like, the human centipede 3 for any reason. Oof. That's not a conversation to have. That's just something I wanted to, to keep them away from. Yeah, you should probably have some um, idea of what's in the human centipede 3 before you buy a ticket. Yeah. yeah. So there's a line, I think. The, so there is a line. And I think um, the theater, the theater owners, the people who work at the theater, they are the ones who are responsible for enforcing this. So they need to know a lot more about the content of a film. Mm-hmm. I think theaters need to bring back screening days for their staff. Theaters yeah. don't do that. 
we have all of these films. We need to you as part of your job need to come in on a certain shift and just watch these movies to see what's in them to yeah. see it's okay. Yeah. Now I know a lot of theaters don't have those resources. They rely on the MPAA for that. And the problem is that when you rely entirely on someone else for it, you abdicate or, your responsibility and or then the MP- responsibility. Or the MPAA pays one employee per theater to do that sort of enforcement to make sure yeah. things are being enforced. That's a, a little bit dodgy. That's not, that's not going to happen. That's not really ideal. No, that's um, not going to happen. But yeah, uh, the parents need to be uh, really inform themselves, and I think uh, sort of disseminating sort of the objectionable things in a film is needs to be more openly discussed. Anyway, we all have our ideas about how we can do a better job of conveying content of a film without creating yeah. a system that creates censorship or right, self-censorship right. or in other ways impedes a filmmaker from being able to tell oh, the story that they want or mm-hmm. impedes an audience member from seeing the kind of movie they want to see. Or I just had a, a different idea. Okay. You know, we have G, which nobody uses anymore, so you can you just throw it away, really. <laughs> so if it's have, not but, rated, it's got to be good for everybody. So uh, G, PG, yeah. PG-13, R, and NC-17. We have five ratings. Yes. Make 20. Wow. Just completely fracture it up. Really have a grade scale as to what's in everything. If the MPAA is paying close enough attention to that kind of content that they can sort of fit it into these tiny little boxes, then everyone will be informed just by the rating. Well, you're going to need, a, you're gonna need a handy dandy guide to figure out what the ratings are because then we're going to memorize 26 of these things. We, we know what the five are. Well, yeah, but memorizing 26 ratings just to yeah, go to 20, a movie with your family is... Tw- 20 of them. Okay, well, okay, 20. Okay, 10. No, 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 no. D- double no, it up. No, no, I think... Really, I think, really, if you're, no, 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 you're going to start... No, like, no, I think, I think you're onto something here. Yeah. I think the idea, what you should do is there should be like one for every letter of the alphabet, let's say. Okay. Course, I don't know the exact number you're going to need. Right. But instead of having G, there's G with like... Then there's different levels of G. Yeah, there's yeah. there's completely suitable for everybody. Uh, there might be family drama. That's mm. a that's a B. Okay, you know there's A is for everyone, all mm. B. There's it's for everyone, but there's family drama, and then like around M is where you get to like the definite R. But uh, but then like N is M is where you get to R. <laughs> well, like but like you know what I mean. Mm. M is where you get to like okay, this is this is intended for adults, but. M is intended for adults with quite a bit of violence. <laughs> then N is, but quite a bit of sex. O mm. is sex and violence. Yeah, P yeah. is for swearing, and Q is for all of those things together. Yeah, well, and like, so when you see the letter, you just see it. But mm. then at that point, I think what would be easier is to just have a little list on the side yeah, that which, just says, here's what it is. Mm. At which point, we're having the MPA tell us it's rated R for course language, etc. Mm. We already have that. Yeah, I guess so. We already have that. One of my favorites was uh, the movie Captivity from about 12 years ago. Or a, a, yeah, it, it was a torture movie. Alicia Cuthbert was tortured and fed pureed eyeballs. Wasn't and it from stuff. an unusually like well accomplished director? Yeah, it it was. It was uh, it was Larry Cohen uh, was, had a hand in that one. Yeah, he but he had, it was like directed by someone like who was like way too um, good for, I'm gonna look that up. Hang on. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, it was just it was just a torture movie. It's actually not really notable, but they messed up on the MPAA rating. It was rated R, uh-huh. uh, and they said rated R for tor- scenes of torture and grisly images, but they spelled grisly with two Z's. Oh yeah, so everyone thought <laughs> so it, was it was bears. It was about bears. It was directed by Roland Joffe, who had directed The Mission oh, and The Killing that's Fields. That's right, and he directed Captivity. Okay. God, God, people need work. What, what the heck was going on there? People yeah. need work. That's what the answer mm-hmm. is. Anyway, let's, I think we have time for one or two more letters. Let's. All right. Let's, uh, that was a long one. A long, yeah. Here's a, a big conversation. Here's a letter from Luke. Hi, Luke. Hi. Uh, 
Uh, so I am kind of freaking out. Ah! And I'm sure you'll both appreciate why. Okay. Uh, yesterday, I turned on my PlayStation 4 and saw a new streaming app. And no, this isn't an elaborate joke to mention Disney+. Plus. Uh, I looked into it to see if it was worth my time. Everything said it was legit. It was free. It had tons of stuff. Tubi is melting my brain. Oh, yeah. T-U-B-I. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry if you've already heard of this and are using it. I'm sorry if this sounds like an ad, but this service is totally my jam. There are channels for Full Moon Studios and for The Shout Factory, as well as many random movies I haven't thought about uh, thought about in years. So many one-season shows were canceled too soon. It's just ellipsis. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. Anyway, if you've heard of it, uh, I'm well, uh, I'd welcome your thoughts. If not, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, Tubi is a thing. There's a lot of streaming services out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've used Tubi a couple of times. We used it when we did all the shark, mega shark movies, mm-hmm. uh, Sharktopus movies. Yeah. One film was only available on there. Uh, Tubi is a streaming service in which you get commercials. Mm-hmm. So that's a downside to that. Uh, but it is otherwise free. So that's bonus. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of B-movie content. <laughs> like, the majority of what they have are, like, mm. B-movies or C-movies. Mm. Um, and if that's a jam, cool. Hmm. Some good stuff there. Uh, but um, there's no... I'm trying to think. When it comes to the streaming services, the ones that I am comfortable just flat-out recommending to you. Criterion. Mm-hmm. Because... They're Criterion. <laughs> they have a high have standard the, of quality. and The best movies ever made, all yeah. collected in one place. Uh, Shudder, if you're a horror fan, it's not as complete as I would like it to be, but there's a lot of good stuff on there, and you're, mm. even if you're a big horror fan, you'll probably find something you haven't seen before. There, there's some really good deep cuts oh, yeah. on, on Shudder, like just going back to the 50s and 60s. You know, they just have all, all kinds of weird cult movies. That I like that they curate. All, yeah, they, all, all carefully curated. Yeah, they curate their stuff. So like every month or something, they was like, oh, and here's all our best vampires movies and here's all our best slashers from the 80s or whatever and you can like really expand your knowledge with them and I, res- I appreciate that they respect I, that. I appreciate that they are convinced and actually uh, right about the power of their content Yeah, uh, that they just sort of have in their library rather than relying on original content. Their original content is fine. Yeah, they've got they, some good they, stuff they, yeah, they got the Joe Bob Briggs stuff and they've put out a lot of really interesting movies. I hear Creepshow is actually pretty good. I, I've, I've still only seen one episode of Creepshow but I did love it. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen yeah. it either, but I've heard good things. Uh, they yeah. they picked up some good films for distribution here and there. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, they're they're relying on the fact that horror buffs know a good horror when they see it. They're like mm-hmm. the world's best video store, and I think that's kind of the, their operating ethos. And I appreciate that. But what both of those streaming services have mm. that allow me to recommend them is specificity. You go yeah. to Criterion for art house and history films or historically significant films. You go to Shutter for horror, which is why. At least in theory, I can't help but kind of recommend Disney Plus because you know what you're getting. Oh, that's true. If you're looking for that content, it's right there. It's not as complete as I would like it to be, and it just got started, and I hear there's all kinds of bugs. Makes sense. But, yeah, if you want a whole ton of Disney stuff, that's not a bad deal. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I can't fight it. Like I, I don't necessarily agree with all the things they're doing and how they're doing it. Yeah, I, but well, they're, the, they're 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 hitting their audience. There's no I denying was, it. I was kind of upset. It's like, and here's our. I, I've complained about this before. They yeah. announced their slate. Here's all our opening titles. Premiere. We're going to open this brand new streaming service. We just bought Fox, so we have access to thousands of movies. And here's 600 of them. Yeah, it was it's a little like, bit of a bummer. Really? Are, aren't yeah. you going to start with 6,000 and then work your way up? I mean, that's. that's I mean, I like, get. I get that because they own two streaming services, Hulu and Disney, mm. they're dividing the content a little bit so that Disney is the mostly family-friendly stuff. 
Yeah. Like the stuff that's like PG-13 or under. Right. I get that. Mm. I get that. But that's still, there's a ton of content missing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I also know that there are some practical reasons for that. Like they have distribution deals with other streaming services that weren't set to end until 2020, 2021. Oh, right, right, so that's why they don't have all the Marvel movies, which is bound to be a bit of a letdown. Um, and stuff like that. I, I, I also get that. There's also a ton of stuff that Disney just has. No. no one else has not quite human. Where mm. is it, Disney Plus? Mm. Just saying. 100 Lives of Blackjack Savage. 100 Lives of Blackjack Savage. I'm, I'm still not going to subscribe, but put it on there. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll subscribe if they put that on there. You Will you? Uh, especially if they clean it up, yeah. If they clean it up, I'll do the, the one-week free trial. Like, kind of <laughs> slip it in and then cancel my subscription. Fair enough. Um, like other things to recommend. Uh, yeah, Criterion, Shutter, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend Night Flight, and this is one that people don't talk about a lot. No. Um, are you familiar with Night Flight? Only because the, you talk the, about it all well, the time. Well, only because I talk about it all the time. Um, Night Flight was a music video program that aired on the USA Network back in the 80s, and uh, they were one of the places a lot of people could get music videos. And they had uh, you know, music videos clustered into themes that ran late at night, hence the title, Night Flight. But they also ran, uh, like, old culty TV series and weird cult movies. They got a lot of really great interviews with interesting artists at the time. You can find, like, a, a great interview with John Carpenter from, like, uh, around the time of They Live. Mm. Um, a lot of interesting musical luminaries. You know, you get an interview with Mark Mothersbaugh, with David Byrne. They were a lot of punk documentaries. If you are at all interested in left-of-the-dial music and culture from the late 80s and early 90s, which is kind of where the coolest stuff in the world exists, mm-hmm. then go, go to Night Flight. And because they also had all of those old movies, they actually got the rights to a lot of these old movies as well. So they actually have like an Arrow video channel within Night Flight. That's cool. Uh, yeah, they have, you know, just a lot of cult movies, a lot of stuff from something weird video made its way onto to Night Flight. So if you're up late at night and you want some weird music videos and weird movies, which who doesn't? Hmm. I don't, I don't want to dial in Return of the Jedi. I want to see the Corpse Grinders. That's you know, true. Yeah. I miss USA up all night. Yeah, then Night Flight is that now. Someone asked me actually recently at the mm. film like a thing. I was like, "What's your what's your favorite TV show from the eighties? Mm. I came this close to picking USA up all night, <laughs> just because they always had the weirdest, coolest yeah, stuff. Yeah. And there was late night on cable, and they would mm. sort of get away with putting more violence and sex right, in there right. than you probably should have. But mm. yeah. So, yeah, th- those are the stations I recommend. Uh, as for all of the new content, I mean, Amazon has a good library. Yeah, Amazon uh, is a pretty. Uh, it's, you have to pay extra for some of it, but admittedly, they have a lot. They they, they, they own the world. You you're, you are lining Jeff Bezos' pockets a little bit more, but they yeah. do have a lot if they're yeah. just interested in sort of wide access. Apart from that, mm, everything else is optional. Yeah, I mean, just use your best judgment, yeah. basically. Um, and, oh, and, and and of course, yes, Tubi. Tubi is Tubi's great, fine. There's great library. You know, there's Crackle a, is also free and uh, driven uh, by commercials. Canopy is a uh, one that people really talk about because it uh, activates by your with your library card. Mm-hmm. It's access to movies with your local library, and you do have. Not free unlimited access, but a, cert- a good deal of access to a lot of wonderful movies. Uh, if you like anime, I highly recommend Crunchyroll. Uh, but, yeah, if you're an anime fan, that's, yeah, that's, that's the way, way to go. Funimation but if, if you're an anime is, fan, fan, you know that a lot. Hopefully, and if you're trying to be an anime fan, Crunchyroll is a great place to go. That's where you can get new episodes of Food Wars and, oh, what's the one? Oh, I, just I, I couldn't watching, say I'm not an anime I just guy, started yeah. watching a really, really funny one about a kid, like a human kid who starts going to demon school. And he can't let oh, anyone you're, know you're he's Oh, you telling me about that. And he it's can't like, let anyone know he's human or they'll eat him. Um, that's pretty funny. Oh, hold on. Let me see if I can find that out. Like in- inverted Harry Potter fantasy. Yeah. Oh, it's it's very very mm. in the welcome to Demon School Iruma Kun. 
welcome to Demon's Do- Welcome to Demon School. No, um, it's it, Arumakun is the protagonist's name. It's in the title. Oh, welcome to Demon School, Arumakun. Yeah, there's a comma. Okay. Uh, so it's really, really, really quite funny, and <laughs> I'm digging it very, very much. It's brand new. Mm. I think it's. I think we're like six episodes in right now. Highly recommend it. Worth checking out, by the way. I don't get to recommend a lot of anime all the time, so I just want to throw that in there. Okay. Uh, let's do one more. So, yeah. Criterion, Shudder, Night Flight, Tubi, yeah. Crunchyroll. These are all... <laughs> Tubi is okay, I guess. But Tubi, Tubi is basically... I use Tubi when I can't find it anywhere else, and I think, oh, I wonder if Tubi has it. <laughs> and then maybe they do. Yeah, and then sometimes yeah. they do. And then I watch it on Tubi. But usually, yeah, the, usually if I'm looking for it and it's hard we, to find, it's re- hard we've to find. We've reached this point where all of these streaming stations are so expensive. Like, you yeah. know, if you subscribe to everything you used to have, like, 20 years ago on your cable package, it now costs twice as much. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it. it's really, really kind of horrible the way they've been nickel and diming us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, choose five. And those are the five <laughs> I recommend. There you go. Yeah. All right, let's do one more letter. One more. Okay, um, this one comes from Kyle. Hello, Kyle. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney. Hello. I am in severe pain. Oh, no. And I ask that you, the most knowledgeable film buffs of which I have access, please help ease my suffering. I like the clarification of which I have access. Of which I have access. You have access to you. Not everyone has a letters letters podcast. I have what I believe to be an image from an iconic film stuck in my head for days. The problem is I can't remember well the, where the hell it's from. Oh, I know that pain yeah. all too well. I'm hoping to use this scene as a reference for a sequence I wish to shoot my thesis film. Okay. Uh, and though I was able to find a similar image on the internet, which would suffice for the mere purpose of comparison, the fact that I can't determine the actual source of the image in my head is causing me to slowly break away from my semblance of sanity. I've gone through this, what you're feeling right now, I've gone through that for years. I, I think the Germans have a word for this feeling. But I'm yeah, sure they do. The kind of insanity of can't re- quite remembering something. Yeah. Uh, the aforementioned image is a medium close-up okay. of a man screaming, violently shaking his head in every which direction. I believe there may be a multiple exposure technique imposed because the thrashing about leaves a dissolving phantom trail on his head's previous position. Jacob's Ladder. That's from Jacob's Ladder. I think you're thinking of Jacob's Ladder. Which was just sped up film, but yeah, Yeah. it's something that's been used a lot. Um, I'll bet you anything it's Jacob's Ladder. I believe there may be... um, Making it appear that he has multiple heads. I believe mm-hmm. the scene may be shot in black and white, though I'm not certain. I'm also certain that if a man were sitting strapped in a chair or uh, strapped to a chair or meditating, this isn't to be confused with the demonic head shake trope prevalent in modern paranormal horror, where an actor is shot uh, shaking his head at a low frame rate, and then playback at standard speed. Oh, so you're saying it's different Jacob's than ladder. that? It's de- okay. different from Jacob's ladder. Okay, all right. I've attached a still photograph of this image, so I'm going to show this to you, William. Okay, yeah. Uh, that. Uh, that closely, though not perfectly, resembles the sequence that plagues my thoughts for the uh, for this love okay. of God help me. So here's the picture. I'm going to show it to William now. Okay. And it is a black and white image of a guy. He has no shirt on. He's shaking his head around. It looks like he has multiple heads, and they're all kind of, kind of out of focus and blurry. Um, you might be thinking of Aphex Twin music videos. Uh, possible. Uh, you, you know, who were done by some uh, very interesting directors. Oh gosh, who did who did Come to Daddy director's cut? Was it Mark uh, Romanek? It might have been Mark Romanek. Um, I'm going to look up Come to Daddy, uh, which is an Aphex Twin music video. A lot of those techniques were pioneered by music video directors. Mm. Um, uh, uh, Nine Inch Nails videos or Tool videos. You know, mm. these kind of like creeping, rusty, meat insanity kind of videos yeah. that were really popular in the mid-90s. Um, so I'm going to recommend Come to Daddy Director's Cut, which is an Aphex Twin uh, song. Yeah, I, I can uh, kind of see what you're getting at. I have this image in my head now. 
of someone who is strapped to a chair and I think they're possessed or mm. being hit with some kind of ray that's causing their head to jiggle around and turn to different yeah. faces, kind of like Clayface in the Batman the Animated mm. Series. Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, you got us. You got yeah. us. This is, oh, if it's gosh. not, if it's not, because what we were describing in Jacob's letter is what you were talking about with the uh, fast motion. Mm. Um, so that is different. Yeah, do, trying do, to do, find. Do, do, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, you started mentioning the, the head shaking, and that comes from Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. I, I think that was the film that at least popularized that, and they started doing that in like uh, the remake of uh, House on Haunted Hill. Yeah, um, it's in there. That was oh, in that actually, that, that's also plausibly it. By the way, you should be looking at House on Haunted Hill. Oh, they, the re- use the remake, yeah. they use a lot of different photographic effects in that movie. It was actually pretty good. Mm. Um, I also started thinking of some of the like VR sequences in Lawnmower Man, but you didn't say it was CG, so it's probably not. Well, it. and, and CG didn't have that blur. In fact, that was the yeah. whole deal with CG: is everything was really crisp. Oh golly, I, I know what you're talking about too, and it's driving me a little bit bonkers as well. No, it's infectious now. This is how the world ends. It's like Jew on yeah. the Grudge. Oh, it was uh, it was Chris Cunningham who did the the music video. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it was Chris- so check out Chris Cunningham's music videos. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I think what you want to do is stop looking for film and start looking at music videos because I think maybe. that's where a lot of that stuff came from. That's a definite. Uh, yeah, just start with Nine Inch Nails and uh, start go into sort of like those dark industrial core kind of songs that were coming out in the mid '90s because I'm pretty sure that's where a lot of that stuff came from. Yeah, um, I will keep thinking about this, yeah. and if uh, if we come up with something, we will no, I, let you know. I know it was done in like an X Files episode, but by then it yeah. had probably already been popularized. Mm. Yeah, um, that, that's that's my lead for you is Aphex Twin and Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, that's that is that is tricky though, and uh, boy, do I sympathize. We've all been there. <laughs> um, if we think of it, uh, I will try to remember to post it on the Twitter account. So okay. go over to Twitter at Critic Acclaim. Mm. Uh, if we think of this later on, we will post it there. Um, what was the, what was the name of the person who sent that to us? Uh, that was for uh, Kyle. Kyle, we will say, hey Kyle, is mm. it this? Yeah. <laughs> so. We will see what we can do if we think of anything else. Hmm. Um, okay, I think that's it. So thank you, everybody, for joining us for our letters episode, our letters episode of We've Got Mail. If you know what this is, drop us a tweet. Uh, That'd be really great. I'm going to put it on crowdsource the, uh, this sucker. I'm going to put it on the, uh, uh, the critically acclaimed uh, Twitter right now. There you go. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, please let us know if you can come up with it. Uh, we will all do our very, very best. Um, and yeah, so thank you very much for listening. If you want to send in your letters, again, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. Uh, our Patreon page has changed address. The content is still the same. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network is the new address for the Critically Acclaimed Patreon. And there you can see exclusive episodes of Only the Best, where we review every single nominee for Best Picture at the Academy Awards in order. All our Yesterdays, where we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek. We're doing commentary tracks. We're doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, We fell a little bit behind, but we're in the process of catching up. And um, we really appreciate everybody who subscribes through our Patreon because without you, we couldn't keep doing this. That's just that simple. So uh, thank you, everybody, who is helping out. If you can't afford to join the Patreon, we're with you. 
We totally get it. Yeah. Th- th- thanks for the people who have been gi- have been giving their support and have been giving their support uh, over and over again over the years. Yeah, we, we really appreciate it. We know it's not we, easy. We couldn't do this without you. We couldn't give you the volume of content without all of this. Um, uh, and and we're, we're happy to give what we can in return, and we're just grateful for your, for your support and your attention. And if you can't afford to, to help out the show, we totally get it. Leave us a review. Or yeah, rating go, wherever you find the show. Tell a friend. Go into iTunes or whatever the new Apple podcast app is called. I think it's just Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, leave a review. Uh, leave us comments. Send us letters. We just love the feedback. And yeah, really s- helps. Spread the word. That's a great way to help out. All right, so thank you everybody very, very much. We'll be back soon with more episodes here on the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we're introducing a new podcast in which we do one list a month uh, as selected by our patrons. One dollar a month, you get to vote in our polls. And uh, they've selected... The best film noirs ever. So we're going to be doing that for hashtag Noirvember. How appropriate. So we'll be doing that pretty soon. So stick around. And, um, yeah, have a great week. Be kind to one another. And sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.